ba 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 da ba ba da ba 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 da ba ba da ba 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 da ba all right you know what that's hurting my throat uh yeah that's so that's the imperial march my favorite music leitmotif in all of star wars i get goosebumps every time that comes on Probably not for the right reasons, though. Hmm. And in today's episode, we're going to do a little little bit of a different, uh, this is like the year of different takes, different formats, different ideas. Today's podcast, this episode, we are going to focus on a franchise, which we've done in the past, but rather than focus on the films and visuals themselves which is you know film is a visual medium of course in today's episode we're going to focus on the music and the psychology associated with the music of a film franchise that film franchise friends is star wars Star Wars, gotta get that Star Wars, uh, Steve Martin riff there, <laughs> I I love that we're talking about this franchise's music because it is some of my most favorite music, and specifically, we're not even talking about the music that you would normally associate with some movies, which is like great uh, music made by different artists, right? This is not like James Bond, where an artist makes a completely fresh song for the intro titles. No, this is the soundtrack, the score that was created by legendary, legendary John Williams, who perhaps has some of the most incredible film scores under his belt that you could just riff off regardless and you know exactly what film star wars indiana jones et harry potter it's just that it goes on and on and on and and so in today's episode i've got some great guests on to talk not only about how the music was composed by williams but also the psychology in the evocation and provocation of what the music is trying to show you and tell you on screen, the visuals on the screen, right? It's a visual medium, but we have scores, and scores have been around 
film since the beginning when silent films had orchestras sitting in the in the orchestra bay of theaters playing tunes along with the silent films right completely separate entities obviously with the invention of sound in films the score then got moved from a live performance to a recorded performance but the idea of a score matching what's happening on the screen has stuck around and i am such a fan of this music itself and there are important things that john williams did for the 1977 uh film which was the first one to come out obviously not first one chronologically in universe of course the prequels so in 1977, Lucas hired John Williams just to be like, hey, can you uh, can you sort of give me an idea of what kinds of, of sounds you would use? But he was actually, Lucas was actually going to use existing uh, sounds and music for the soundtrack, but instead ended up having Williams just do just a couple of things and Williams agreed and, and the rest is, is, uh, is history, right? He wanted, so the, one of the things that I know about this movie is that, and George Lucas has said this a lot, is that he wanted Star Wars to sound operatic. He wanted it to be, uh, he knew that it was going to be a, a more of a, a of a space fantasy rather than the existing science fiction at the time. I mean, this is late seventies, so we already had like almost three decades of science fiction of the twenty first century in film, and so it was going to be quite different from that. And so he wanted big music. He wanted big fanfare, and I think. John Williams delivered that with the main title theme. The you know, that the that big theme. He really delivered on that. And so in in this episode, we are going to explore how this particular music, along with, you know, related pieces of music, even from John Williams's own filmography. Uh, has played a role in the psychology of moviegoers when they are watching it. And even, I dare I say, when they are not even watching the movie, but just hearing the hearing the the, the music and playing in 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 other uh, facets. And the last bit of trivia that I'll give you for this before we jump into the episode with our guests, is that AFI, the American Film Institute, lists this particular soundtrack, and of course, I would say the franchise itself, with the addition of movies and uh, the prequel series, the sequel series, that it's it's just grown from here. But AFI has listed the soundtrack from the 1977 film, Star Wars, now a Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope, as the best film score of all time. Of all time. The best. It is number one on their list of best film scores. And I think you know why. <laughs> I think you know why. But 
our guests are going to explain why. So let's jump right in. My guest hosts today are the writers of a fascinating chapter that is the basis for our discussion today. First, uh, a returning guest host, Dr. Jim Davies, a professor of cognitive science at Carleton University. He's award-winning instructor and is also passionate about the relationship between psychology and science fiction, having contributed to Star Wars psychology, Star Trek psychology, and Doctor Who psychology. And if you want to hear more of Dr. Jim Davies after this, you listen to this episode, of course, you want to listen to the whole thing. He is the co-host of the award-winning psychology podcast, Minding the Brain. And joining us for the first time is Joe Kramer, a composer who has written music for projects in a variety of media, including long-running franchises such as Mission Impossible, Doctor Who, Space 1999, and Thunderbirds. So good. He has written contributions uh, about music for several books, including The Psychology of Star Wars, which brings us here today, The 50-Year Mission, and The Secrets of the Force. Jim and Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, nice to be back. Excellent. I'm happy to have you on because, uh, as I mentioned to the, the listeners at the start of the episode here, Star Wars is one of my beloved franchises. And Jim, the last time you were on, and this is a departure from Jim, the last time you were on, which was we were talking about AI, artificial intelligence, which is related kind of to what we're talking about today. There's a lot of shared history with Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. And I read recently that Steven Spielberg was the uh, only person to like the first cut of Star Wars back in 1976 or 77 um, at the first screening. Everyone else hated it. Um, so after the show, we chatted about this particular paper and I think we're coming up on about a year since that episode came out. So how have you been since then, Jim? Oh, I've been, I've been doing pretty well, um, publishing books and trying to keep up with the avalanche of Star Wars media. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, are we excited for Ahsoka? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've pretty much loved all the. Uh, just about all the live action TV shows. Yes, they've been wonderful. And Joe, how is uh, how's your summer going for you? It's going well. Uh, did some traveling, saw some family, had a little bit of a vacation, which was nice. And uh, been right, working on some concert pieces of music of different genres and different types. Okay. And general, and then working on some Doctor Who projects. So Doctor Who, uh, new uh, new forthcoming Doctor Who projects. So. Uh, in England, there's yeah. a company called Big Finish, which creates um, audio drama adventures using members of the original cast. So oh, wow. David Tennant comes back and does shows, uh, Tom Baker, all the living doctors up to uh, Paul McGann have come back and done it, or up to Eccleston. Eccleston's doing it now. Okay. Up to David Excellent. Tennant. Uh, Matt Smith. Peter Capaldi and uh, Jody Whittaker have not done it yet, but everybody else has come and done one at least. And they're they're movies without the vi visual component. 
Mm -hmm. So it's all the dialogue. It's all the sound effects. There's no narrator. So it's not an audio book. It's like listening to a movie. And I, my son, I've been training my son in sound design because, you Mm -hmm. know, nepotism. And he's been been helping helping me out with the sound design. And then I do the music and, you know, I'm responsible for the final mix of the whole thing as well. So that's uh, I've been doing Doctor Who for this company is and very spinoffs. Like I just did a box set with Adventures of Rose Tyler um, mm-hmm. that adventures she had between her sort of two major appearances on the David Tennant run. And then um, Missy, the the doctor's sort of arch rival Missy. I've done a couple of box sets of stories with her. And uh, I'm about to do a box set with Sylvester McCoy, who was the seventh doctor. So there's things to keep me busy. That's that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. I don't know if I could keep up with that, but that sounds amazing. And your son is how old? He's 20. He'll be 21 in October. So, yeah. Excellent. So, yeah, got to keep that got to keep that Hollywood business alive. Well, (laughs) the new the new generation. And, you know, I, I can afford his rates. So (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All right, gentlemen, let's pivot to Star Wars and specifically Star Wars music. Uh, So, like I said, the two of you wrote a chapter together, um, and I I assume that the chapter was in Psychology of Star Wars, Mm -hmm. this this book that um, uh, I uh, I introed. And you focused on primarily on John Williams first what i consider to be immaculate score mm-hmm. uh and but not only that that film primarily on that film but uh, you included other films and and i will link the uh the paper uh to the show notes here so people can can uh read along and um you added some elements from the prequel series, although the paper came out, or the, excuse me, the chapter came out in 2015, so just probably before The Force Awakens, and so we'll, we'll address some of the additions to yes. the idea at the end of our chat today, just sort of bring everybody up to speed, but before we jump into the psych concepts and, and the music concepts that are the at the heart of this paper, I wanted to find out how the two of you, uh, a ostensible cognitive science scientist and a Hollywood composer, how do you get together and write a paper like this? How did this come about? <clears throat> no, that's that's funny because we we worked together. We just happened to work together as uh, for summer jobs when we were, I guess, in college. Yeah. Uh, we we both worked at a place called uh, it was called Soundtracks and um, it was a little like karaoke except instead of performing you made a recording so you would pick a song you'd go in the recording studio and you'd walk out with a cassette tape and I've, um, I've heard of these places I think they yeah. predate me but <laughs> and uh, Joe I just met Joe there and he knew my sister whose name is also Joe. And she um, worked there the year before, actually. Oh, that's how it happened. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we just became friends. It wasn't actually all that busy. And so uh, there was a lot of goofing around. We still have a lot of recordings of our of us uh, <laughs> having a ball. I love it. Um, during the downtime. And uh, and, and Joe, Joe and um, another guy who's still in Hollywood. Yeah, Mark. Um, Mark. Uh, they actually, I think, illegally lived 
downstairs of the store in complete <laughs> darkness with no windows oh and goodness. would just come up from the cave to to um to work so uh anyway and we uh, i guess just never lost touch or, or we lost touch and then facebook came along and we got back in touch and uh and we both love star wars uh, i remember talking about uh star wars and the star wars role-playing game and all that stuff mm-hmm. uh, way way back then even so and I, joe had a dream to become a composer and go to berkeley college of music and here he is yeah, I was going to Berkeley uh, in the early 90s. And in the summers, okay. I was working in Lake George at the studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, while I was at Berkeley, even before I'd gone to college, I'd been friends with a kid from uh, my high school. I grew up in a small town where junior high and high school were in the same building. So as a mm-hmm. seventh grader, I became friends with a senior who made films on Super 8 mm-hmm. before home video. And when he went to college, his roommate was this guy who's fairly controversial figure now named Brian Singer. Yeah. And okay. Brian through Brian, I met his writing partner, Christopher McQuarrie. Uh-huh. And uh, I met Ethan Hawke, who was an actor in their little group. And I met Dylan Cussman and Brandon Boyce and a bunch of the people. Wow. Because of the whole there was a whole Dead Poets con- connection because yeah. of uh, Ethan. And. By the time I was going to college, Singer was making headway in L.A. He won Sundance Film Festival with a film called Public Access, which then got him uh, the 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 set up to make The Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm, right. And then Macquarie won an Oscar for the screenplay to The Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. And when I had moved to L.A., I lived around the corner from him and I didn't have a car, so he drove me everywhere. <laughs> and we just became like fast friends. And we realized we had like a lot of shared perspectives on film and film music and the contributions a composer can make to a film. And, you know, at the sure. time, you know, he was saying like his favorite score was Close Encounters and his favorite film was Close Encounters. And mine was the first Star Wars and the music from the first Star Wars. So we we had a lot of shared interests and similar to Jim, you know, Jim and I we just hit it off and he has a, you know, I don't know how much it comes out of, uh, in your professional life, but you have a really goofy and enviable sense of humor. And uh, that was, to me was what, you know, I never knew what weird wacko thing Jim was going to do <laughs> next, especially with some of these cover versions that he would do in the, uh, he took the song Wooly Bully and sang burning down the house over it, which was just bizarre, you know, <laughs> I think to a degree we tried to outthink each other a little bit. So anyway, yeah, we kept in touch. And, you know, when this article came along, when he asked me if I was interested in contributing. I was going to ask who asked yeah. who. Yeah. Well, James, okay. Jim invited me, you know, because uh, um, he's obviously the more uh, academic and sort of you sure. know, uh, clinical, uh, learned, esteemed sort of, you know, professor laureate. And I'm just some, you know schmuck out in LA schlepping and <laughs> trying to like, you know, score movies. So. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And so this is a, this is a chapter in a, a, in a big book of just the psychology of star Wars. Mm-hmm. So yeah, other they talk about like Darth Vader's Darth Vader's mommy issues or whatever, you know, like sure. there's like, all kinds of psychology stuff. I, I actually have another chapter in that book about the droids and consciousness and stuff. So yes. Um, 
I love but it. I got one. So I have two chapters in that book. One with. Joe I've been trying to find this book in libraries, and I I'm probably going to need to do uh, interlibrary loan on this one because well, it's on I have Kindle for four bucks, or it's on Amazon for four bucks. Okay, so, um, uh, you know, sure. Maybe we can maybe we can crowdfund you a copy <laughs> of the book. And, uh, I love <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because I I need to. I, I've been. I have been trying to put a psychology of Star Wars uh, course together at mm. my college for five years now, um, but I don't have the time to run it, uh, and I need to put like resources together because I need to have the time to put those resources together. But I mean, you could probably put a course together on just this book. Yeah. So let's talk about the music, John Williams scored this amazing soundtrack and in the in the chapter i i think you guys have a great breakdown of the the broad ideas and then uh the psychology of those strategies and practices that john williams did and i think the the i i think what what the reader could pull from this, and I think our discussion today is those broad psych concepts can be applied to how John Williams scored this movie. So what I want to first start with is that um, the main title, okay? Mm -hmm. So the main title is one of the things that if... To have been a member of the audience at the time, predate the unfortunately the first film predates me. But I remember the first time I saw it, just bam, right in your face, big Star Wars, big fanfare. So uh, talk to us about the the main title and the main theme um, and the psych concepts associated with this iconic uh, sound. Okay, well, um, the first thing is that, like a lot of things, it evolved. Um, the movie begins really with the 20th Century Fox fanfare, which is in the key of B-flat. It was written by Alfred Newman in the 30s or 40s. Uh, it was the 20th Century Fox fanfare. And um, it's in B-flat. And so they decided that the score, the main title, would also be in B-flat. Um, same key. Okay. So that the Fox fanfare ends up as a sort of intro to the score. And in fact, okay. certain certain releases of John's soundtrack, of William's soundtrack, actually included the Fox fanfare because so many people felt like it was sort of the, you know, the doorbell that, you know, begins the score. Now, there are on the on a co special collector's edition of the original score from 77, there is a bonus track of all five takes of the main title. No way. Two, yeah, two of which were edited together to create the version that's in the film. And in take one, there's actually a sort of introductory crescendo chord that would have been over the black mm -hmm. and then builds to the 
big B-flat major chord when the word Star Wars appears on the screen. So even that sort of magic moment that as little kids we we were waiting in that darkness and silence for the big you know, originally there was an that wasn't how it originally began, but after take one, I think they decided, no, we'll get rid of that. Okay. So it evolved to what we saw. And I think what you'll find with a lot of John Williams things is that he's not afraid to try something, and him and Lucas had the kind of relationship where they could do stuff and it could evolve. So once we get to that big fanfare, what we've got is a sort of four bars of like a brassy kind of flourish. Mm-hmm. The trumpets are doing sort of celebratory, the horns are doing a counterpoint to that and the trombones are doing a third part. And this is all kind of like, you know, the entrance of a king, for mm-hmm. example, or okay. the unveiling of a, of a glorious army. You know, it's a celebratory fanfare. And then the theme kicks in and it goes into like a very sort of one, two, one, two, um, militaristic dun, 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 dun. and what he does is that's clever is that the melody is an upward the contour of the melody is up it's always reaching okay. so bum bum ba, 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 bum bum ba, 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 bum but the other thing is that it's sort of off the beat it's a little syncopated so it's like bum bum ba, 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 bum bum ba, 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 bum bum. So where the pulse is falling, it's around those bar lines, and it just oh, creates. Um, it's like tension and resolution. Oh, know? okay, okay. You know that what you're you you're off the beat, and then you bring bring us on the beat. Ba, 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 bum. And that melody then goes from the brass. That melody is in the strings. And it's got a soaring sort of sweeping quality that's different than the more strident military theme of the sort of A section of the main title. And the form of that opening is basically like A-A-B-A-A. So it's um, basically we have the... What's what at that time was called Luke's theme, but sort of became the overall sort yeah, of saga right. theme. Mm-hmm. And then you have that middle part, which you know, because of the Mecco disco record, I always associate with the robots. But it's it's <laughs> it doesn't really have any specific character aligned with it. That's the da na 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 na. And then we go back to the main theme, and it goes through two iterations of that. One is with the horns and then with the full orchestra and then as the crawl begins to you know become unreadable as it fades into the distance that's when we get the score in its sort of proper begin and we have these sort of dissonant chords that settle Mm -hmm. down to like a sort of typical outer space chord which is like a major chord with with a flat six on top you know, you've got that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is sort of, you know, the magical sound of like. Right, you know. right. Yes. And, you know, Williams is really leaning very heavily on all of our associations with music right away, right off the bat in those first two to three minutes. 
Yeah, and I I feel like it um he because he had always envisioned this to be more of a a space fantasy kind of opera um bigger than the uh science fiction that had come before it. He wanted it to be bigger than Lucas too. Yeah. You oh know? yes, yes, Lucas, right. Yeah, that that you know, Lucas's original instinct, you know, he went to Spielberg and he said, you know, I'm making this Star Wars movie. I right. need somebody who understands old-fashioned movie scoring. And Spielberg exactly. was like, I've got just the guy, because he had done Jaws and Sugarland mm -hmm. with Williams. And, you know, Williams went in and Lucas's first thing to him was like, I'm thinking of using classical music the way Kubrick did. And Williams said, Well, if we do that, we're locked into those pieces. If we write our own music in the style of those composers, then we can do whatever we want with the themes that we create. We can do them yes. forwards, backwards, upside down, fast, slow. Mm -hmm. Um and so that's when Williams, you know, uh, sort of won Lucas over to an original score. Mm -hmm. But again, keeping that concept of, you know, Lucas's thing was, I'm going to be showing these, the audience places they've never seen. I'm dumping, you know, Lucas, Lucas loved to make movies. When they made his first film, when he made his first film, THX 1138, he said, this is not a film about the future. This is a film that somehow fell, fell into the present from the future. And he was yeah, obsessed with, you know, he was obsessed with foreign films. Right. So his idea was, I just want to drop people in the middle of the story without mm -hmm. any context. And he said, the music will be the context. Mm -hmm. The music will be what gives the audience that root in the familiar. So, so Jim, why then after? So many years, you know, we're 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 coming up on on fifty years now. Oof, why? Wild. Uh, just putting a number on that. Why does then this main title fanfare and then the progression into the score give people goosebumps? Uh, yeah, there. Um, I, I there's a lot of nostalgia, of course. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where everybody on Earth practically knows Star Wars, and so. Uh, you, you just have to put the music on and people uh, get a feeling. Um, and, you know, I, I felt this when I was writing the chapter, but Joe, Joe's uh, description of this stuff is so incredibly rich and interesting. Yes. And I'm trying to speak to the, uh, the, the psychology of it, but in terms of what we've done scientific studies of, and it's so primitive <laughs> compared to, like, the, you know, uh, the on-the-ground understanding that a composer like Joe has. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. It's, it's still interesting. But like Joe mentioned, the reaching. And I thought that was that was such a great mm -hmm. description of of this um, thing where, where, where the notes go higher and higher, but they sort of fall back. So da, 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 and it goes it gets even. So it goes back before it goes higher. So it's almost like it's sure. I, I picture it like trying to climb a hill and you slide down a little and then you get a little bit higher. And um, okay. and that is a, like ultimately it. a really positive uh, exciting kind of thing. And one, one thing that we know from psychology is that um, the mind works in metaphors and one mm -hmm. of the main metaphors, well, when I say that, I mean, when we have abstract concepts, we tend to understand them in terms of thinking about concrete things. Mm -hmm. And one of the big ones is up and down. So up and upward motion and being high and versus downward motion and being low. Mm -hmm. This is very a very primitive understanding that we're live in a world with gravity 
and when things are up high, they're, they tend to be more alive, awake, healthy, and when they're down low, they're either dead or sleeping or weak or, or something like that, fallen over. Um, and that is the, um, the theory of why we associate um, up with good. Okay, right, so this yeah, is a big absolutely. thing that up is good and down is bad. Now, a, a really deeper question is why do we associate high notes with up? And that is actually a little bit harder to tease out. Things that are higher up tend to be smaller. When you hit smaller things together, they make a higher pitch. Sure. Uh, your Adam's apple raises when you make a higher pitch. Uh -huh. uh, maybe bigger animals are on the ground and they make a lower pitch. All of that might contribute to why we actually call high notes high. Uh, sometimes sure. when I talk to people about that, they say, well, it's a, it's a higher frequency. It's like, yeah, but we talked about high notes long before we knew what a frequency was. Frequency really. was, I mean, absolutely. It, mm -hmm. it predates all of that. And if you look at other languages, we get the same dynamic. Um, low, we call What we call low and high pitches might be called light and heavy, young and old, weak and strong, small and large in all these different languages. But they sure. all correspond to the thing that you'd think that they do. The small pitch is the, you know, the high pitch and the... Uh, the uh, so it's it's um, so when we have this reaching, it sounds good. It sounds like things are getting better. Things are are struggling, but they're getting better, uh, based on this really interesting metaphor of mind. And you know, John Williams did a similar thing in Superman with that reach of you know. Yeah. Oh, and what's great I love about that, that music too. <laughs> well, what's great about that is that that note that's the most unstable note in like a western scale. So it's literally like the riskiest note, the most unstable note, and then he resolves it. And it's like that the highest note in the melody also gives us this like almost euphoric kind of sense of resolution or landing or s successfully flying. And then yeah, uh, and 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 in the in in the chapter you, it's it's one sentence I think um, where where you both say that the high pitch or the 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 higher pitches somehow make us make us also feel good, right? So it's not even that that we're oh, abstracting def definitely it. emotional. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it's not just necessarily abstracting uh, the the metaphor of up well, is good. Uh, but it it also like makes us feel good, and it's and then you follow, uh, and then it no, either it, yeah. after that part or or somewhere later, you say that there is no recorded civilization on in 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 human history that ha is not associated that ha doesn't have music. So music is essential to humanity and that's how i read it i don't know if that's necessarily what you meant by that well, but the way you were you know the way you were phrasing that brings to mind maybe perhaps even an instinctive uh life-saving measure in human beings which is that a lion makes a low threatening sound mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know um uh whereas a child has a higher voice less threatening. yeah so maybe I, even in something as primal as that, yeah. we've learned that things that are low and and yeah. rumbly are dangerous, whereas things that have a higher sound are safe. And and they play and and, and filmmakers play with this a lot too, with uh, birds chirping after a a disaster of some kind, right? And bird chirping tends to be sure. higher or pitch like, as you know, well. 
you'll find like sound designers will put lions roaring underneath motorcycles to make them give the audience a subconscious kind of sense of a threat. You know what I mean? Or, you know, so like the dinosaurs roaring in Jurassic Park might have some mechanical sound behind it right, to, yeah. you know, give us a, a, a sense of danger. We talked a little bit uh, about um, in, in a little bit of an, in the intro about how uh, part of the main theme was referred to as Luke's theme. And I want to just jump on that idea of so-and-so's theme, yeah. right? And so this is the idea of a leitmotif. And not mm -hmm. everyone does this, but John Williams does this a lot in many of his projects, right? So just going to Harry Potter, we have Hedwig's theme, for example, right? Um, so talk to... Uh, Joe and Jim, talk to me about what a leitmotif is and how John Williams uses this in the score for Star Wars. The leitmotif came from Wagner and opera. Uh, he was really the master of it, the first master of it, I think. And the concept is that you come up with a short, recognizable bit of music, and it signifies a character or a concept or an element in your story. And... Mm -hmm. You know, for Star Wars uh, 77, I think there were maybe six or eight that we outlined in the article. You know, Luke has a theme. Princess Leia has a theme. Mm -hmm. Ben Kenobi has a theme, which sort of grows to encompass the Force mm -hmm. throughout the saga. The Empire has a motif, a light motif. The Death Star has a light motif. And certain characters have, you know, the Jawas have uh, a motivic... Uh, theme associated with them but it's it's only used in scenes that involve them right um there's a there's a wonderful theme for when they get their medals which uh he sort of plays some games with in return of the jedi he brings back then mm -hmm. but it kind of only exists in that one scene in, in, in star wars 77 but what williams will do if i'm guessing based on what i can tell as a, my own experience as a composer and my own analysis of this work what I imagine he must do is look at the character and try to sort of ascertain in a, in a maybe clinical or academic way qualities of the character that he thinks the music should reinforce. So okay. in the case of Luke Skywalker, it's that wanting to do more, wanting to be something more than just a farm boy on a desert planet to have an adventure and rescue a princess. So it's that striving for greatness. Yeah. Ben Kenobi is sort of a relic from a bygone age that he speaks of with a wistful quality of nobility and grandeur that. So his theme, ha, you know, ha, Williams, I would imagine, strove to compose a theme for him that was um, evoked that nobility and that sort of sense of a bygone age. The deaths, the uh, Death Star and the Imperial themes are militaristic in their quality because the Empire is like a machine, a militaristic machine. So I, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you right there. So what makes uh, what makes a theme militaristic? What makes a what makes okay. the music militaristic? So, like, for example, the Imperial theme in the first Star Wars is bum, 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 ba -da -dum, da -da -dum, da -da -dum. Mm -hmm. and it's got snares going, 
and it's played on brass. The brass is often in triads, so it's like, you know, like um. Excuse my sloppy playing, but you know that <laughs> trumpets in that kind of uh, layout sound like the trumpeters in an old Roman army marching along, you know, the Apian Way. Okay. Um, the, the the percussion, which is like a march sort of tempo. Uh, the sure. Death Star motif is sort of a bum, ba, ba, bum, which is a sort of dissonant note at the top. And whenever okay. we sort of what what he did for that was he knew we'd have several shots where we cut to an establishing shot of the Death Star for about three or four seconds. He needed something short that got mm-hmm. to the point. And so this brass thing of you know I'm gonna guess at what it was. It was something like something like that. It's that's not perfect, but you know it was this three chords and the last one was out of the key of the first two and that theme that little motivic piece it's not really a theme it's like a little motivic fragment it just he needs to convey to the audience as quickly as possible as much information as he can i want to just suggest too that part of the uh militaristicness is the instrumentation because joe isn't it correct that military music tend to be done by marching groups so you can't really have a piano or a cello Right, you don't have a lot of string <laughs> instruments in a marching band. It's winds and brass and percussion. That's exactly right. Loud, too. carryable, yeah. you know. Yeah, it so, reminds right. me of of um, like the scenes that you see for like the American Revolution or something like that, where right. there were soldiers that were tasked with just having drums, right? No yep. guns, just drums. Right. Yep. No mu- or muskets, I should say. <laughs> and you know, so. And then, like, in- in the case of Princess Leia's theme, what we have is a damsel in distress in the sort of typical... The structure of the story, she functions as like the typical damsel in distress. What Lucas did that was fresh was, by casting Carrie Fisher, she was like the sort of the damsel in distress who had to keep rescuing the rescuers. Yeah, when she was a little but, short to be a stormtrooper. Yeah. yeah. Williams scores her very sincerely. That's the thing with Williams. He, he treats the whole thing very sincerely. Okay. You know, he doesn't goof on it. And that's sort of what would have killed it, I think. You know, even Harrison Ford had to sort of play it straight. He had got a few wisecracks, but he wasn't constantly looking at the audience going like, this is ridiculous, right? Right. Whereas, you know, I think some less secure actors may have done that. Maybe because Alec Guinness was there too, and they up their game. But John Williams met them at that, you know? And... His theme for Princess Leia is sort of straight out of the 1940s school book of writing a sort of femme fatale or or love interest kind of theme with this, you know. That sound right there, that chord progression of. That's just straight out of like the Franz, Franz Waxman Hitchcock school of like the leading lady. And it's it makes me feel disarmed like it it is disarming in a way like uh, you're you're not expecting her to be that much of a badass because you first hear it when she's running away from, you know, the the uh, Imperials and having to to put her message on R2-D2. So how does that play into the music? Yeah, he voices it. The other thing, like Jim brought up earlier with the militaristic, instrumentation is a very critical part of all this stuff. 
mm-hmm. by having Princess Leia's theme in the flute. Okay. You know, and like when we first hear it is when she's programming R, you know, when C, I think as we first hear it when C3PO spots R2D2 and Princess mm-hmm. Leia is kneeling in front of him. Right. And it's a flute and I think tremolo strings. And the tremolo strings have a very delicate quality, a very tentative, almost magical quality. And even though it wasn't quite executed that way in the film, in the script, it was very much that C-3PO wasn't actually sure if he saw her that because there was so much smoke from the battle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the music is playing into that. And I wouldn't be surprised if Lucas said to Williams, you know, look, I wanted her to be harder to see, but I couldn't pull it off. Can you help the music make this more of a sort of ghostly moment? You know, um, these are the kind of things that directors will ask composers to do. You know, for example, uh, on Jack Reacher, I was, you know, asked, well, we're not sure about the if there's a love story between Tom Cruise and Rosamund Pike. And so there were some pieces of music we were like, if we want to push the romance, we need some music that will do that. You know, in the end, we didn't use it because, you know, we got responses from test audiences that they didn't want the romance in the movie. But that was a case where a director asked the music to sort of help push or nudge something that the filmmaking hadn't managed to capture to the director's satisfaction. That's so fascinating. I could spend hours on uh, picking your brain, Joe. Uh, but I, I want to come back to uh, my my comment uh, about how, uh, especially Leia's leitmotif made me feel. And Jim, you, there is a section that I think I think is an overarching section. I know it's just a section of the of the chapter, but I think it fits with what scores how scores are used in in uh, in in movies, and that is that um, music is emotional so um why does and and we mentioned this a, a little bit ago right with the theme causing goosebumps but, but why is it that all of these light motifs are different sounds different instruments what makes the music emotional in star wars Yeah, that that's a that's really important, I think. And as somebody who dabbles in many arts, you know, um, art is often emotional, but there's something very direct and special about music and dance. I believe um, that is it's very hard for irony or deception. It's, it's kind of it, it goes straight to you know what it is. I remember um, in, in the first draft of the article, I talked about how psychology tends to broadly put emotions on a two-dimensional scale of uh, what's called valence, which is like happy sure. and sad or positive and negative, and then intensity or arousal. Mm-hmm. So you can have like a high arousal, low arousal, happy and sad, and a lot of emotions fall somewhere in this space. And I think music is music can be um, can be written to, to be like that. In fact, there used to be a, a music streaming service what it was called but it actually had a little grid of, of that and you could click anywhere and it would play music uh of, of that was either like high intensity and sad high intensity and happy or what you know anything in there oh interesting youtube has uh if you want to select music um, music covery it was called that's right it's called music covery ah 
uh, has uh, you can choose like bright or or somber or things of that nature. So yeah, uh, they still kind of exist. Yeah, but yeah, but then then Joe Joe said you know there's more you could do more than that. You know, it's a little, <laughs> and he mentioned poignance, which I think is great. Um, a mixer of sadness and tenderness um, that doesn't exactly fall in this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, uh, and you can also get humor, you know, you can, and uh, 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 Jar Jar's, um, Jar Jar's theme is um, uh, funny because of, uh the way that the notes relate to each other, which I think Joe can talk about a little bit more, but it's, it's possible to make money music that sounds funny, which is interesting because like music is kind of without any kind of reference in the real world, but it can sound funny. Yeah. I mean, Right. Well, like, for example, the Jar Jar theme, you know, Williams does two things. One is that the, the melody sort of doesn't resolve in a traditional way. It sort of twists and turns and goes in directions you don't expect, expect kind of like the character. Like the melody sort of bumbles clumsily through the scale. But the other thing is that he juxta he has the melody played simultaneously by an oboe, which is a very high, tiny pointed sound, and a tuba is a very low, very round sound. And so you get this thing of, you know, uh, you know, like... And just the fact that it doesn't seem to relate to a scale, it's got this weird rhythm, and it's got this contrast in the notes, for whatever, you know... Jim can speak more to maybe the fundamental psychology at work here. My... My... Uh... Uh, knowledge or experience simply goes to sort of look. I know these things work mm -hmm. to accomplish what needs to be done. Why it does, why it works, you know, sometimes I'm at as much of a loss as anyone. You know, why does playing a certain melody with cellos and French horns in a certain range stir in us this sense of like just, uh, you know, love or like um, grandeur or majesty or you know that feeling of like when you uh see the grand canyon you know mm -hmm. uh awe. yeah you know there's just certain tricks and you know every film composer deals with this to one degree or another john williams happens to deal with it in a way which i like very much which is like light motifs orchestration very melodic and musical work but there are there are composers who deal with it in different ways philip glass deals with it through repetition and um, more blocks of things. Stravinsky dealt with it. Stravinsky and Bernard Herrmann were two composers who tended to deal in what we call cellular composition, where they just had little sort of musical tokens that were almost like Lego brick, and they would build the piece out of that. Um, Hans Zimmer deals with things in a, in a more sort of textural um where where almost just the sound itself rather than any orchestration or music it's the sound itself that he's making that he's trying using to try and you know convey an emotion to an audience and the thing about music is it's not literal and it's it's like jim says several times in the paper it's abstract Mm -hmm. And it, I think it by it almost completely bypasses our consciousness. Oh yeah, I I hundred percent agree that it base primal instinctual yes, 
down down beyond our cortex. I want to focus on one particular set of uh, emotions, uh, and that is the low emotions to uh, to pull from our earlier chat uh, part of the chat. The low sounds of the Imperial March, probably, I would say, either the second, perhaps the second most recognizable uh, theme from from the movies. And that is played in a minor key, uh, which as a non-musical person, just a lover of music, what is the difference here and the emotionality from the difference of something played in a minor key versus a major key? Well, psychologically, um, it seems to have different effects and it appears to be cross-cultural. Um, so minor keys are a little bit more distressing sounding, a little uh, off kilter, disturbing, and major keys feel very uh, sure and positive and happy. Um, and this has been found cross-culturally. And also when people talk about sad things, the, uh, you, if you measure like what pitch their words are, it tends to fall more into like minor key kind of stuff. Um, you'll see, I've heard musicians so deny this. Um, <laughs> uh, like I was taking a piano playing app and, and it said, oh, some people say minor keys are sad, but the song Happy is done in a minor key. And I'm like, you know, I bet if you put happy in a major key, it would sound different. There is a little bit of tension in the song happy, <laughs> like the Pharrell Williams. Um, and uh, uh, Do you, you actually know, and, believe that he's happy? <laughs> and and klezmer music is often done in minor keys and is, is thought to be happy. But I, I think that if you put the things in minor keys or you put it in a major key, it would, it would feel even more positive than it does. You know, I would argue like in the case of something, certain things, it's context that, gives you okay to me klezmer, as somebody who never attended like a synagogue hearing klezmer music outside of a context for me it always had a, a minor key darkness sadness about it a mystery about it um, okay it did not sound happy necessarily to me now i think if it was if i understood its liturgical context that my reaction would be different here's a great example ray's theme in the in the sequel trilogy is in the minor key He is a the, ostensibly the hero of that trilogy. Sure. Now yeah. some of that is a, some of that's a reflection of the times we're in. You know okay. the, the the what's Minor in vogue. Now, well, what's in vogue right now is different than what was in vogue when Lucas made Star Wars, and and JJ is a different director than Lucas. You know, sure. JJ yeah. Williams. So very much so, like his theme to Star Trek was in the minor key. You know, the theme he had Giacchino write for Star Trek was minor. There is a tendency now to give your character the Avengers theme is in minor. You know, there's something in the zeitgeist right now where having a key, a, a, a hero's theme in the major key is like nerdy or square or dumb or old fashioned. And having their theme in the minor key makes them epic. You know, then they're oh. epic and awesome. And I think Williams was facing that. He sort of plays with it because her theme is in A minor. Then he goes to a D major chord, so he's okay. trying to get some some light in there, you know. 
So one of the emotions that I was thinking of when I was uh, replaying Ray's theme in my head um, was curiosity. Because the first time we see Ray and the leitmotif of her theme... Sure, well that, this is... That motif that he uses as part of the, the part of sort of the supporting arrangement of her theme. I see. A very, it has a very curious kind of like, I want to know, I want to know what's going on here, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's a thing people just goof on, but I think it's very true. And he actually kind of admitted to this in an article. But, you know, Superman, Superman, Indiana, Indiana, you know, Star Wars, <laughs> Star Wars. I, you know, I think he Steve does Martin. that. I think that there's a truth lurking in there somewhere that he looks for things that are going to resonate with the audience. Because what he needs to do is create a whole new language, essentially, mm -hmm. a whole new vocabulary that an audience, very almost totally subconsciously, mm -hmm. grasps, grasps onto and understands what it means. So it's very direct and it's very, um, it's not always very subtle or very, um, there's not always a lot of subtext to it, but it works. I mean, you know, you can't get much more subtle or, uh, unsubtle than. Yes. But it works. And you watch little kids in a pool who've never seen Jaws and inevitably one of them starts making that kind of music, you know, when they're trying to scare their little sister, you know, or their little brother, dum, 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 you know? Yep. I still do it. I still do it with yeah. my students who probably have never seen Jaws, but so, know, you know we, of it. What we talk about in the article about Darth Vader's theme, which is really clever. And I, I do think Williams did construct this this way is that you have a minor scale. That's the G minor scale. Darth Vader's theme is right. That's the first half of his theme. That's right. pivoting between a G minor chord and an E flat minor chord. So these are two minor chords, but the melody itself is actually the outline of a major triad. That sounds way more uplifting. Uh, and I haven't and changed the notes of the melody. I've left the melody unchanged. Wow. And what's, and what's, what's psychologically, I think what part of what makes that work psychologically is that Darth Vader is a human underneath that suit. Mm, mm -hmm. And that Lucas's, you know, ultimate goal with this trilogy was to humanize Darth Vader, you know, to, for the son to redeem the father and show that there was a man that could be saved in this suit. And that theme being sort of this minor key theme that has a major key triad buried in it, hidden in it, mm -hmm. is almost a literal, it's about as literal as you can get in terms of, you know, a good person hidden in bad clothing. And 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 uh, somebody on YouTube and I and I want to I'm going to play this underneath us here, but somebody on YouTube decided to re-record that in a major key. 
Uh, thanks, Jim, for finding that for us. Um, and it, it's, it sounds like a completely different uh, theme. And, and I think they they even called it the triumph of Darth yeah, Vader. The redemption. Right? The redemption, there we go, yeah. of Darth now, Vader, where in the in the original, it's very, it's, 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 it's dre- uh, I don't want to say dreadful. It's, it's scary. Um, scary. Yeah, it's That's scary. Right. It's menacing. It's uh, overpowering. Yeah. Now, not to split and then, hairs, but to be a bit of a musicologist, they did okay. actually change the notes of the tune. So they didn't leave the the melody unchanged. So it, what they did was they sort of took the idea of it and made a major piece out of it, which is still oh, an effective demonstration. Okay, but you know they didn't. They did have to. They quote cheated a little bit. By, they didn't transpose it directly. Well, they instead of going like they sort of go like or something like that. They changed uh, the actual I see. notes okay. of the melody. Again, it's a still a valid exercise. Um, but what's brilliant about the original version is you don't have to change the notes to have that major chord buried in the original. May I may I point out another clever example? Sure. But this kind of thing is the Emperor's theme, which is with the uh, operatics, yeah. Right, so it's these low voices down here. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, now if you take that and you raise it up and have little kids sing it, and you put it in the minor key, it goes. That does sound playful. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that's the celebration music at the end of the Phantom Menace. So it is. So who won? Who won the Phantom Menace, you know? Who who is the Phantom Menace? I think I did see an analysis of I think I had have, have watched an analysis of, of that and how uh, they recreated that particular piece to to show you or to subtly signal to the audience that yeah, no, Chief Palpatine won that whole thing, yeah. Everything is moving according to his plan. Yes. But it's very subtle because he's got the little kids doing it. Yeah. He's hidden it and he's made it a major key thing. And he does a, a third thing like that with Kylo Ren's theme in uh, The Rise of Skywalker. When, the last one. Spoiler alert. Uh, Kylo Ren turns good and then <laughs> is going to rescue Rey. He's got that theme instead of being like... He, I, and I'm going to guess here. I'm improvising, but it's something like... He's he's taken it and put new chords around the melody to give it an uplifting and sort of heroic quality, which this is sort of film scoring 101 if you're a thematic, leitmotivic composer like John Williams, is you can take your theme, and it's exactly what he talked about in 77 when he scored the movie. I can take them and make them happy or sad or fast or slow or stretch them out or squeeze them together. Yeah, uh, and they did an interesting thing in Star Wars Web- Rebels uh, just recatching up on that in in advance of Ahsoka, and they played the Imperial March as diegetic um, in the first season of uh, one of the episodes for on the planet of Lothal. They they took that music and made it a part of the universe itself, and they made it faster. 
They so they increased the tempo of it and made it. Uh, I, I guess I guess they would have transitioned, but I, I mean I could be wrong because I don't know the music. Uh, um, uh, but they but they also made it maybe a major key to make it sound like the empire is great. Yeah, I, have, I know that they did that in solo. There was a like a at some there's a scene where there's like a little commercial on a TV in the background for their joining the empire and they use the imperial march mm-hmm. as like a recruiting theme. Now, you know, some people balk at that. The truth is, does anybody really think at the end of Star Wars that they're marching up to get their medals and there's no music playing? Right. You know I mean? So <laughs> if assume it's 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 not unreasonable to assume that the music they're hearing is the music that's in the score that's Ben Kenobi's theme so (laughs) technically the force theme exists as diegetic music in the Star Wars universe if you're going to get sort of hardcore nerdy I have to say my analysis of the scores has not stretched to any of the ancillary Starting with the holiday special, the Ewok movies, the droids and Ewoks cartoons, all of that stuff really exists outside of like even Shadows of the Empire, Obi-Wan. You know, the Williams' contributions to Obi-Wan are good, his contribution to Solo is good, but to me, those exist outside of four nine movies. Okay, For me, fair enough. It's psychologically, uh, there's so much material now that to yeah. try to analyze all of it, you know, and, and, and the pitfalls of trying to score you know a hundred episodes of clone wars it's a much different task that kevin kiner faced than john williams faced and to try to expect the same kind of standards for that is just crazy you know it's right it's a hundred hours of material versus you know 12 right yeah i i agree uh and and I I did want to just focus on the on the core movies and, and that's all right. So my last question to you both, and Jim, I'll start with you. Um, what was your because uh, how they how much later they I suppose they came out and, and the fact that George Lucas wasn't necessarily involved with the sequel trilogy. What is your um, what is your brief analysis of I, I know we briefly talked about this, but a brief analysis of the sequel. Did it fill you with the same sense of emotion, the same sense of wonder? That's well, um, no, but I also haven't seen it. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> right? Yes, that is. I, I don't. I, yeah, I'm, and I'm always. Um, it's sort of my standard answer too. When people are like, "Oh, board games today aren't as fun as board games as a kid," like. You were a different person when you were a kid, so I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to uh, composers of new things. Um, but uh, I'm, I've been quite impressed with um, a lot of the modern music um, in, in the Star Wars world. Um, I, I listened to like an hour and a half podcast about the Mandalorian music that was very, very interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 I thought it worked. I didn't find it distracting, which I think is like there's something to be said. Okay. Um, what was the central piece of the Andor music experience? Because for me, oh. it was the spycraft uh, of it. 
like the, the yeah so the music the music um uh the themes of andor apparently changed throughout the series and uh mm-hmm. there's right. music there's diegetic music a lot of it within the the show um they use sound to communicate and so there, it's, it just seems to be a very well, tightly tightly woven um piece of art with the with music in the Excellent. And uh, Joe, same question uh, on the sequel trilogy. Yeah, I mean, like Jim, I'm not nine anymore. So, like, the kid that saw Star Wars when he was seven is not, he doesn't exist. I mean, he's buried in me somewhere, like, maybe like a major chord in a minor, minor chord body. But, <laughs> you know, um, I, you know I, I was aware of that when Phantom Menace came out. It was exciting. Like, I never thought George Lucas would ever make more Star Wars movies. You know, that 13 years between Jedi and Menace, like, eons. It's it's mind-boggling now that Phantom Menace is older now than I think Star Wars was when Phantom Menace came out. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? That's... The passage of time as I get older, you know, it just rockets along. And, of course, my reaction to the... Different. I'm, I'm very, I'm always aware of the fact that it isn't the London Symphony at Abbey Road, like the sequels were. It's not the like the prequels were. It's not George Lucas at the helm. It's JJ and uh, JJ again. And, you know, I had already, you know, by the time this, this sequel trilogy came out, I had had the good fortune of doing Mission Impossible at Abbey Road with, you know, best, some of the best musicians in London. So I had my own sort of, by then, I was almost like, well, I would have done that. But not so much, you know, not so much that, I guess, exactly. But, you know, I had my own opinion about how I would tackle certain... Working on a movie is like working on anything else. To a certain degree, it's problem solving. And how you solve the problems is how you differentiate yourself as a composer. You know, how do you solve the problem of making an action sequence exciting? Well, I do it this way. How do you do it? Well, you know... So John Williams will do it with ostinato, which is like a repetitive uh, figure in the string. So dun 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 dun. Ah, Duel of the Fates is my favorite. So John Williams will use that. Hans Zimmer might do it with drums and electric guitars. You know what I mean? And then Philip Glass would do it with with a totally different way. So everybody has a different way of quote solving the problems, and I I can hear in. I I believe, I should say, I believe I can hear a difference in styles of directors from the sequels to the prequels and original films. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, with uh, the new Indiana Jones movie, I can hear that it's Spielberg's not behind the helm. And maybe it's my imagination, maybe I'm reading into things, you know? Because certainly Empire and Jedi feel like part of the Star Wars to me, even though they were different directors. Right, but I feel yeah. Like, but I do feel like, in that sense, that it was almost like a television series where Lucas was the showrunner. You know, Vince Gilligan is the showrunner of Breaking Bad, even though he didn't direct every episode. You know, I still feel very much like Empire and Jedi are George Lucas projects. Even if personally, Anyway, so back to your question. I think that, you know, when you're grading on a curve of, when you're grading just John Williams' work, maybe the sequels are not the pinnacle of his career. But when you're grading on the, when you're grading his work based on the work of everyone else working today, I still think it's 
miles beyond what anyone else is doing. Personally. Yeah, I I will agree from my just my fan uh, perspective of listening to John Williams music for uh, thirty plus years. So, and I don't have the same kind of experience with the original trilogy that I do with the prequels um, because I saw them on VHS. Right. Um, so it, it was a different experience to see them in the theaters. But then I, I, I went and saw the uh, the prequels in the theaters, and I was one of the few who really enjoyed Phantom Menace. Um, when people ask me whether I like Phantom yeah, Menace, I'd be like, uh, but uh, you know, they've grown. It, it has, the, all three of them have since grown on me, and I think the music plays an important role in that right there are sig- significant storytelling issues with phantom menace um and maybe some choices on jar jar Binks. uh but to me the music brings it back to a good film i just said the duel of the fates is my yeah. favorite to me, like, I always think it's, people always sort of act like, well, like, George Lucas should be crucified for the prequels. And to me, it's like, look, I love the Beatles. I also like Wings. <laughs> but I don't think Wings is the Beatles, you know? Right. Well, I lo- the first three Star Wars movies are like the Beatles, and the prequels are like Wings, you know? <laughs> and the sequels are like Beatlemania, you know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, on that note, gentlemen, uh, I want to thank you both for joining me, Joe Kramer and Dr. Jim Davies, for uh, our discussion on Star Wars music and the psychology of that music. And so uh, one last time, if you want to tell the listeners here on my show uh, what is going on, anything that you'd like to plug, um, let, let, let us know. Yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, go ahead, Jim. I I'm, uh, just want to pitch my podcast again, Minding the Brain, me and a neuroscientist. Every month talk about some topic and have a lot of fun. So if you like psychology podcasts, check it out. What was your most recent episode? Uh, most recent episode was on animal consciousness. Ooh, that's relevant for my interest right now. Excellent. <laughs> and Joe? I have a cup. I have a box set of uh, adventures with Rose Tyler coming out on Big Finish. It's bigfinish.com. I did the music and my son and I did the sound. Um, I hope I didn't monopolize the conversation too much, Jim. Thank you for your patience with me and my long-winded answers. And you too, Alex. And uh, we're good. You know, just uh, you know, I'm holding out hope that Lucasfilm will call someday. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? They're gonna keep cranking out properties. So yeah. yeah. Let, just keep that keep that line open. Thanks again uh, to both of you. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Thanks. It was fun. And that's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.